So welcome back again to part two. Uh, my name is John Keeley. Thank you again for joining us in the Come and See Inspirations uh, with Shane Ambrose and Father Martin from Glenstall, Father Martin Brown. Shane, you're going to chat with Father Martin on something that I can just about pronounce, never mind understand what it means. Can you start us off with this little chat? Sure, John, no problem. Well, now, this morning, myself and John are actually pretty much on the same page because we're going to get an education this morning on a particular topic, and that topic is actually the issue of ecumenism. Now, um, I had the brainstorm to kind of ask Father Martin to come on the program back in January, because at that stage in January, we have the week of prayer for Christian unity. And... um, but it also happens to clash generally when we do our year in review program. So I penciled it away at some stage. I was going to ask Father Martin to explain to us what is ecumenism. Because I suppose for many people, it might or might not be a term you've heard of. But for many of us, practically, it may not be something that we know about or participate in. So Martin, can you tell us this morning what it is all about? Well, I'll do my level best. Yes, it's funny. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of people, their only familiarity with the word is from Father Ted. Uh, when things were confusing, he would say that would be an ecumenical matter. Uh, <laughs> ecumenism is, a, is what the man used to say, a queer name but great stuff. Um, it's, it's, a Greek, it's a Greek word, uh, and I don't pretend to know much Greek, but um, from the Greek word oikumene, which just literally means the whole inhabited world. So it used to be, right. it's a classical term, they used, the Roman Empire, emperors used to use it to describe uh, their territory. Um, so ecumenism is about the whole inhabited world. So it's, it's basically the business, the effort, the study, the desire for Christian unity, for the whole Christian uh, mm-hmm. world uh, to be one. Uh, so obviously we are aware that the Christian church isn't one. Uh, there are literally tens of thousands of Christian churches, and a lot of them uh, don't have very close relationships with one another. A lot of them, uh, some of them don't even see other Christians as real Christians. So the body of Christ is broken in that way. Uh, the church is divided. So ecumenism is about trying to address that, uh, trying to uh, pray for Christian unity at, the, at, at its heart, uh, but also to work for Christian unity. So the fancy word is, is literally about Christian unity. Uh, what is the difference between ecumenism and interreligious dialogue from a Catholic perspective? Because that's another term that sometimes is thrown yeah. around. Um, when we speak of interreligious or interfaith uh, dialogue or meetings or whatever, we're referring to uh, dialogues and meetings between Christians and other faiths. Other faiths meaning Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, and so on. Christianity is one faith. And so... I wince and weep when I hear people referring to, oh, um, there's lots of different faiths in my child's class. There's, there's, two, there's two Protestants and there's a Methodist. Uh, that's all one faith. Uh, there is, mm. there is one, the Christ, Christianity is one faith. It might be many uh, church bodies and ecclesial groupings, but it is one faith. So when we speak of interfaith and other faiths, we're referring to uh, non-Christian religions. Okay. Now, in terms of, I suppose, the, 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 the Catholic Church's interaction with, with, with ecumenism, we're kind of late arrivals at the discussion table, I would say. Uh, yes. Um, obviously, the history of... Uh, no, it's very hard to uh, 
to summarize the, the history of the, of the church in, in a couple of sentences. Uh, but obviously there have been a number of periods in history where there were serious divisions in the church. Um, so in the, in the fifth century, there were two major divisions uh, over the Council of Ephesus and the Council of Chalcedon. And that led to a group that are known as the Oriental Orthodox, um, leaving communion with the, with, with the Western Church. And then it seems to happen in 500 year spaces. Uh, around around <laughs> 1050s was the great schism between uh, Constantinople and Rome, where the where they, uh, where the Orthodox, as opposed to the Oriental Orthodox. Uh, so the, those who are now the Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox and the various uh, churches that stem from there, uh, they and Rome separated. Um, and then, of course, in the uh, 16th century, we had the Protestant Reformation. And of course, each one of those splits led to further splits. And uh, so that's why we end up now with a situation where we have tens of thousands uh, of churches, some of them very tiny, obviously, but some very big. Mm. So Rome's attitude for a very long time, uh, up until basically about 50 years ago, was kind of, not to be too flippant about it, but it was, you left, so if you want unity, you come back. Mm. Uh, some people used to joke that it wasn't about ecumenism, but you communism. It was up to you to come back <laughs> in. Um, mm. so, so, but actually, that was largely the attitude of most other churches too. There wasn't much uh, cooperation uh, between churches. There wasn't much uh, fraternal or friendly relationships between churches. It was really only what, what's considered the modern ecumenical movement really only began about 1910 uh, when there was a big missionary conference in Edinburgh. Now, it was all uh, Protestant uh, churches. There were no uh, Roman Catholics and there were no Orthodox. But it was a group largely, largely of sort of evangelical missionaries who were active uh, as missionaries in Africa and South America saying we should be doing things together. If we, if we are to spread the gospel, then our being separated uh, is, a, is a hindrance to that. So, in fact, a lot of the impetus for Christian unity came from the desire to, be, to give more consistent witness as missionaries. And that is very apt because one of the key scriptural texts that sort of uh, underpins the ecumenical movement and all action and prayer for Christian unity is from chapter 17 of St. John's Gospel. It's part of the long... Uh, farewell discourse of Jesus at the Last Supper before before uh, his passion. And in chapter 17, verse 21, he says, May they all be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. And in the second half, which is often o overlooked, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So the that was very much the, what motivated the beginning of the ecumenical movement, it was about unity, not just for unity's sake. It wasn't just about sort of being nice and being friends and holding hands. It was to be one so that we would be more credible and realistic witnesses to the gospel, so that the world may believe that you have sent mm. me. But the Catholic Church did not um, join in that meeting. And when, when, the, when the ecumenical movement got going uh, in earnest over the following uh, 20 years, there were a number of big international conferences uh, and the popes of the time uh, refused to um, to allow to send Catholic delegations, and not only did they refuse to send Catholic delegations, but actually Pope Pius XI wrote a letter. Uh, it wasn't an encyclical; I think it was a, a, an apostolic instruction or something, actually condemning the ecumenical movement. So it wasn't just that right. we stood, it wasn't just that we stood aloof from it; it was that we said it was a bad thing. He said 
the only the union of Christians can only be promoted by promoting the return to the one true Church of Christ of those who are separated from it. So very much the Catholic Church's view was the other churches left the unity of Catholic faith. If we are to be one, then they know what they have to do. So that was very much the attitude of the Catholic Church right up until the 1960s and the Second Vatican Council. Um, there were some, uh, obviously, that changes of the Vatican Council didn't come out of nowhere. There were, there were overtures being made uh, in certain areas, and there were certain theologians who were working at it and certain bishops who were working at it. But the Church officially, as, a, as an institution, uh, only began to even consider the possibility of engaging with other Christians um, at the Vatican Council in the 1960s. And in terms of Martin, in terms so it kind of from the Vatican Council, we kind of said, well, maybe we kind of need to start talking to people. Would that be fair? Um, it was that, but it was actually more than that in, in many ways. Um, it was it was in, in there was two, it's, it's mentioned in two of the very significant documents of Vatican II. Uh, one, the, the kind of the, one of the main documents, uh, the document on the Church called Lumen Gentium, is not only uh, said, yeah, we should talk to these guys, but it said very clearly that. Uh, it recognized that what it called many elements of sanctification and of truth are found outside the visible confines of the Catholic Church. So all along the, the Roman position was a very blunt, uh, what was often said as outside the church, no salvation. So there was many people believed that if you weren't a Roman Catholic, you were actually going to hell. There was no possibility uh, of even being saved. Um, now, mm. many Protestants believe the same about Catholics. That, that was the way dialogue, or that's the way, that was the, the, the atmosphere for many years. Um, so in, the, in Vatican II, not only sort of allowed and said it was okay to talk and pray with these people, but it actually recognized that many of the elements that bring people uh, to God, many of the elements that bring sanctification, many of the elements of truth are found outside the visible boundaries of the Catholic Church. Now, that's to modern ears and eyes, sounds like the most obvious thing in the world. Uh, mm. And you might, you might think, you might be saying, well, big deal. What, 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 how, how could that be considered a major step forward? But as I say, it really was a major step forward because uh, before then, uh, it was we did not want to talk. Uh, say if, they, if, if any unity was to be on our terms only, we, did, we had nothing to learn from anybody. And if they wanted to be part of us, they had to come back to us uh, and be absorbed not just united but uh, martin if we if we were to look at ecumenism i suppose you know like you said we there's very much there's there's a, there's a biblical kind of mandate for it in terms of john's gospel in particular but if you were to break it down i suppose for brass tacks in terms of what would it actually mean or how what how does it actually work because i suppose i'd come at it with you for from two perspectives like if for people that might be listening this morning and would be thinking about that and I suppose the first one would be that maybe many people, many of our listeners might have grown up and the understanding of, say, particularly Protestantism would have been, well, they have a problem with the Pope, they have a problem with Mary, and therefore they have a problem with us. Mm. Um, you know, from, in terms of how has our understanding of each other's position on that come around? Because if you think about it, in particular, say, for example, the Protestant churches, they were protesting the issues of the day when they were formed, um, you know. And so, how how have we, how has that dialogue worked? Um, depending on the uh, particular church groupings that we've been talking to, huge progress. Um, I know people sometimes people who are very engaged in, in, in this kind of get 
get cross and get sad and get angry that uh, the churches still don't celebrate the Eucharist together and don't don't share in Holy Communion together. Uh, and that obviously is uh, painful, especially if, for, for people who are deeply committed to, to Christian unity. But the level of progress that has been made is actually quite extraordinary. Um, people might necessarily realise that since that period in the 1960s, Rome uh, and the Vatican's the, the, the department, the other way, the, the various departments in the Vatican, various uh, congregations and councils are all part of the Curia. Well, one of them is the, is the Pontifical Council for the Promotion of Christian Unity. And since Vatican II, it has had formal, very high-level dialogues with a whole range of different groups of churches. So they have a whole set of dialogues with the Orthodox churches of the Byzantine tradition. That's the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox. They have dialogue with the Oriental Orthodox churches. As I say they're the, uh, some of the ones from Syriac, Syriac tradition. They have dialogues with the Anglican Communion, which is what the Church of Ireland belongs to, with the World Lutheran Federation, with the uh, World Alliance of Reformed Churches, that's what the Methodist Church belongs to, uh, with the Methodist uh, World Council, uh, with the Baptist World Alliance. Most recently, they've actually begun dialogues at an earlier stage, but with some of the sort of Pentecostal evangelical churches, some of which would be quite fundamentalist. Uh, so there's quite a lot of dialogue with those two. So obviously, depending on the on the group, the, uh, the relationship is at different stages with all of them, uh, because there was more, for instance, there was more common ground, for instance, with the Orthodox maybe than there would have been with some of the Protestants to start off with. Mm. But in mm. other ways, some of the issues are more deeply rooted, and of course, there's lots of social and political reasons for some of, some of the uh, disagreements between the churches too, and cultural reasons that aren't just to do linguistic reasons sometimes that aren't just to do with matters of faith. So, for instance, you asked about things like Mary and the Pope. Well, the, the dialogue that I would know most about would be the, the, the dialogue with the Anglican Communion, with the Church of England, the Church of Ireland, the Episcopal Church in America, all, that, that family of churches that, that, that owe their uh, roots in the Church of England and that uh, have their centre of unity in, uh, in Canterbury. Um, there have been several uh, very formal periods of a year, of a couple of years each, where groups of theologians from the two uh, sides, if you want to call them sides, have worked very clearly, very very seriously and in depth uh, on a particular issue. And they have produced some documents that are sort of highlighting the issues, some where they can actually say, these are things we agree on. So they have produced documents on all of the really thorny issues, on authority in the church, which obviously refers uh, or at least includes reference to the, the place of the papacy and how uh, the office of Peter and the office of universal primate might exist in a unified church and how that, what it might look like and what the issues that still need to be overcome are. But they are talking about those issues and, they, and people will be surprised uh, at the level of progress. Most of the churches and church groupings that Rome is in dialogue with accept that the Bishop of Rome should have some form of primacy, some form of preeminence among the uh, among the Christian pastors. Uh, they obviously don't all agree on what that what shape that should take, but they accept it. That it should, most of them accept that it should take place, take some have have some shape. Uh, the dialogue with the Anglican certainly has also produced uh, documents on uh, on Mary. It has produced documents on ministry and on priesthood and on the episcopate, and obviously uh, th there are serious. It's, it's, it's difficult because 
when you make progress in one area, then something might happen in other parts of the church that makes that difficult. So for much of the 1970s and 80s, the church, the Anglican Communion and Rome were coming very close on the question of ministry and what, what priesthood means, what, what the episcopate, what bishops mean. Um, but then, of course, various parts of the Anglican Communion, including, of course, the Church of Ireland, uh, began ordaining women uh, as deacons and as priests and indeed as bishops. Uh, and obviously Rome doesn't accept that and does, doesn't uh, see that as, as, as possible. So that has made that difficult. But they are still talking and, they still, and they're still addressing those questions. Uh, they're finding ways of w- one of the themes that's, that's big in ecumenical world nowadays is a thing called, it sounds, it's a slightly strange term, but it's, it's a very simple idea, receptive ecumenism. And what it means by that is, Often when it comes to these sort of dialogues and meetings, uh, the tendency can be for me to tell you what's wrong with you and what you need to do to get, to, to, to get, to get on the right side and to, be, and, to, and to agree with me. Whereas receptive ecumenism is about asking, what can I receive from you? What can my church learn from the way you do things in your church? And so you see things like decision-making in synods as opposed to by one person is very common in the Orthodox world. It's very common in, in most of the Protestant churches. So how, how can that feed, in, feed the way Rome does its business, for instance? So there's a lot of that sort of work on, on how, how we can learn from one another. So there's a huge range, de- depending on, on the various denominations, depending on the issues that, that, that cause the splits in the first place. Uh, the, all those hard questions are being addressed, obviously with more success and more fruit, uh, in some cases, some of those Eastern churches that split in the fifth century, um, they were. Some of those splits have now been overcome completely. The, the churches are still separate on paper, but there is full interchangeability. They recognise one another fully. They don't see one another as enemies. They they will receive and give communion to one another uh, because some of the, the the main reasons for the rows were linguistic. They were they were about mistranslation from Greek and Latin into Aramaic, which is their language. And so questions about the divinity of Christ and uh, how Christ understood himself and so forth have been overcome. So, so issue, progress, it's, mm. it's not just talking shops. Progress is made. It's not very exciting progress mm. most of the time, uh, but progress is made. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to, uh, just two last things I suppose I wanted, I wanted to check in with you. And I suppose, you know, those, as you, you outlined there, you know, kind of, if you like, high theology or, or theological questions and discussions that are happening, which sometimes I suppose might go a small bit over people's head. But, you know, to... Completely the... over most people's heads, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but if you were talking to Mary and John in the street and you were say, and they were to say to you, well, Father Martin, what can we do for ecumenism? You know, because at the end of the day, when we pray and reflect on the scripture on the program, we, you know, the, we, one of the things we say about our Lectio Divina is scripture still speaks to us today. So Christ's prayer that all may be one still applies to each and every one of us. So for Mary and Joe and John in the street, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, and if they were to say to you, well, what can we do to be able to answer that prayer of Christ? What would you say? Well, yeah, clearly Mary, John and Joe aren't going to be part of a theological dialogue internationally with the Assyrian Church of the East, for instance. Uh, they've probably never heard of it, so, uh, so they're not going to be involved in that kind of, as you say, that sort of high-level dialogue. Most importantly, uh, awareness and well, what you just mentioned there, prayer, scripture and prayer. Two things, to pray for Christian unity, uh, Sometimes it happens, kind of, there might be a sort of a, an almost automatic formulaic kind of a prayer in the prayers of the faithful sometimes, but to actually pray for Christian unity, 
um, to pray for it because, not because it's just something that's nice, but it's because what God wills for his church, it's how God, uh, it's how Jesus envisaged his church should be, that they all may be one. So to pray for it. Um, and in, in places where there are Christians of other traditions, uh, to pray with them occasionally. Uh, for a long time, and, and I'll, uh, people of my parents' generation, they would never go inside the door of the, Catholic, of the Protestant church. In fact, in some dioceses, uh, to do that was, was considered a reserved sin. And so uh, I remember one of my teachers at school telling me that um, uh, he, he lived in West Clare and uh, a local farmer, a Protestant farmer, died. And all the local farmers uh, went to his funeral. And the following Saturday, they all went into Ennis to the bishop to have their confessions heard because they, they had committed such a grave sin that the parish priest couldn't give them absolution. Only the bishop could absolve them from this huge sin of praying for the dead. Uh, so so it, it's, a new, it's actually quite a new thing that we, that, that we pray together. So to, to take that opportunity to pray with other Christians. Um, there are a lot of Christians in our areas now that weren't here 30, 40 years ago. There are a lot of uh, churches of sort of African extraction, where there might be quite a Pentecostal fla flavour, they can be quite challenging for, particularly for Roman Catholics, to get their head around, and, and we can be quite challenging for them to get their heads around too. Uh, there are a lot of Eastern Europeans in Ireland now, and so there are a lot more uh, members of Orthodox churches. There's a lot of uh, Indians who belong to some of the uh, Oriental Orthodox churches. So there are a lot more people of other Christian traditions around than there would have been even 10 years ago. So to get to know people, uh, to, to try and find, okay, we're not going to be having major doctrinal discussions about the processions of the Holy Spirit, but to actually, to get to know Christians of other, of other traditions, to, to find where there is some common ground, um, mm -hmm. to pray, to pray for, for each other, maybe, maybe then if, uh, to pray with one another if, they, if, if, the, if there's something organized locally. It might be hard to kind of knock on your neighbor's door and say, here, I'd like to come and pray with you. Um, mm -hmm. But, but even to, to, when you know that somebody belonging to your new Russian neighbour uh, is ill, to tell them you'll pray for them, all of those things build up Christian unity too. They break down some of the walls, the barriers, the suspicions. They make it... Uh, you're talking about all, kind of ecumenism and sort of high theology. Well, one of the things I remember reading that struck me very powerfully uh, a few years ago, uh, one of the sort of pioneers of, of ecumenical engagement in the Catholic Church, a very famous French theologian called Yves Congar, uh, who was doing some of this stuff before Vatican II and got into some trouble over it. But he was part of a, uh, an international, you know, it was all high-flown theologians. But for, for, for a while they used to only meet, but they never actually prayed together. But then, then they began to just say the Lord's Prayer together before their meetings. And he, he in his reflections afterwards, said, it's very hard to not have real dialogue with somebody after you've said the Lord's Prayer with them. Mm. So just, and that, that has always been part of the ecumenical movement. It isn't all about those great big international dialogues. It's spiritual ecumenism. It's about getting to, and ecumenism of charity is often referred to, which is just about getting to know one another. So getting to know mm. you, getting to learn all about you, and then praying with and for. Uh, so to, to, to pray for other Christians, and if possible to pray with other Christians, it's just as important. In fact, it's a lot more important than some of the international dialogues and big stuff. One last question, Martin, for you, just in relation to this. And one of the terms that Pope Francis has used quite a lot in relation to ecumenism 
is the expression ecumenism of blood. Yeah. And of course, in this regard, what he's talking about is the fact that the martyrs of Christianity across the world, and I suppose it's something I suppose that we should we should we should be very conscious of that in parts of the world, Christians of every denomination, I suppose, are suffering persecution because they are Christian. Yes, very true. Um, we we kind of attend to associate the early church and the Roman Empire as the age of martyrdom, whereas in fact, the last hundred years there have been more people murdered out of hatred for the faith, as it's called, in Odium Fidei, which is what martyrdom is. There's been more in the last hundred years than the rest of the history of the church together. Um, vast amounts of people, uh, and, and sometimes very obviously, like in, in the last two years, there have been several very large public slaughters of uh, Egyptian Coptic uh, monks and, and faithful in their churches. Um, so it, it happens all over the world. Um, and so, uh, yes, so there is an ecumenism of the blood, because... That's, it's a it's a very vivid sort of an image, but it, but it it literally cuts to the heart of, of the issue, because uh, when they, when they are carrying their palms in the in the heavenly court in the heavenly choirs, uh, they're not going to have labels on saying this one was a, was a Copt and this one was a Roman and this one was a Protestant. Uh, they are all martyrs for Christ. They all died not because they were Copts, because they were Protestants, or because they were Catholics, but because they were Christians. And so there is something. Uh, very uniting about that, uh, and we should uh, honour one another as martyrs and try and uh, and indeed pray to one another as martyrs, invoke them, uh, and maybe just try to learn a bit more about them and uh, be aware uh, of the people from other churches and other traditions who have been heroes of the faith, both martyrs and other great heroes and teachers. Okay, thank you very much, Martin Flat. Unfortunately, we're out of time, as usually happens on the programme. So we might bring Martin back again maybe later in the year just to continue this discussion. Um, and Martin, you had suggested a piece of music for us to close out the second part of the programme. What was it again? Well, it's a very well-known, reasonably modern uh, song by one of the St. Louis Jesuits uh, called One Bread, One Body. Because again, that also cuts to the heart of what, it, of, of what it's about. Because unity is not, not something that we will ever achieve. It's on our own. It is, it is God's gift. And, and before before all those bits, we were one, and we are one in Christ still to, to a great extent. So this, this song expresses that very well. Uh, everybody is one in the one Lord. i
own body 